The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're going to start our story today in 1968, way before I was born and probably before you were born, Alistair. Very funny, Aki. Yes, I was born after 1968. <laughs> so before either of us were born, Terry Winograd was a young grad student in Massachusetts. And Terry had just started at MIT's brand new artificial intelligence lab. Basically, the culture was, look, nobody has ever tried doing all this kind of stuff with computers. They've done business calculations or whatever, but nobody's tried to get them to see things or to move a robot arm or to do language. And therefore, we're on the exploring cutting edge and we're going to solve all these problems right soon. And Terry started building a computer program that turned into his dissertation, which he called Shirdlu. Yeah, with only one vowel, S-H-R-D-L-U. We're watching a video here of a demo of Shirdlu that Terry had recorded at the time. It's this silent, black and white, low-res, grainy video. And you see a virtual tabletop and a bunch of geometric shapes on top. It looks like a computer sketch of a really, really boring form of Tetris. Yeah, chatbots are everywhere today, but Shirdlu was really one of the original chatbots in history. Using this machine called a teletype that's like a typewriter on a tray hooked up to a gigantic computer the size of a small bathroom, Terry created this interactive assistant that could help you navigate the virtual world of blocks on a table. So you could type in something like, pick up the red block and stack it on top of the blue cube. And like magic, this virtual robotic arm would appear and do that stacking for you. And you could ask Shirley questions too, like, which cube is sitting on the table? And on the display screen, you see this text show up letter by letter replying to your prompt. And the amazing thing about Shirley was the people interacting with it would use normal English. You didn't have to click on a bunch of buttons. You didn't have to throw in a string of numbers. And you didn't have to use any obscure computer programming language. Yeah, watching this video of the program now, it feels like you're watching two people texting each other, even though it's a person talking to a computer. And so if you and I are impressed watching this thing in action today, you can imagine how stunned people were when they saw this half a century ago. And from there, the field of AI was supposed to take off like a rocket ship. Terry hunkered down to bring Shirdlu to life, and he wanted it to work in a universe bigger and more complicated than just a couple blocks on a table. But the deeper he got into it, he was running into more and more obstacles. And after a while, he gave up on Shirdlu, and he gave up on AI. He ended up leaving the field altogether. Hi, this is Aki Ito. And I'm Alistair Barr. And this week on Decrypted, we're taking you to Stanford to meet one of the most influential thinkers in the history of computing. This is an early pioneer in the field of AI. 
who built one of the most impressive reasoning machines and ultimately concluded that computers wouldn't be able to match human intelligence in his lifetime. And when he came to that conclusion, Terry Winograd dedicated the rest of his career to improving computers. Not as a replacement for human thought, but as a tool to help all of us. Terry's fingerprints are everywhere in the technologies powering modern life today, including Google Search, which started out as Larry Page's grad school research project. And this was something that Terry supervised. And now, with all these digital assistants powering our everyday lives, we're going to have Terry, the very creator of their precursor, test them all out. Yeah, consider him the great-grandfather of Siri or Amazon's Alexa. You might be surprised by Terry's conclusion on these devices, on how far he thinks the field has come since he unveiled Sherdley to the world almost 50 years ago. And he'll give us his thoughts on where these devices are headed to. Don't worry, I have a long way to go before I become smarter than you. Okay, so let's rewind way back to a time before the days of personal computers. It's 1960. Elvis Presley is on the radio. Russia had launched Sputnik only three years ago. The world echoed the news. Russia had blasted a man-made moon into outer space. And it would be nine years until the U.S. put a man on the moon. Terry, meanwhile, is in high school in Greeley, Colorado. The physics teacher said, you know, you don't really need to sit through these lectures in my physics class. Well, I'll give you a workshop up in the attic. It was in the attic of the school. And you want you to build something interesting. And this is when Terry first encounters a computer. My father owned a, what was a steel business, but had grown up from being a junkyard and had a huge collection of old junk stuff they had picked up at government surplus sales. And so I took spare parts from the junkyard and I built a little computer, a box, looks like a bread box. Uh, in fact, the case I put it in may have actually been a bread box. Uh, and it did a very simplistic computation, but it was, uh, it worked. He attended Colorado College, a liberal arts university where he was a math major. But what he really fell in love with there was linguistics, the science of how language is structured and understood. And he spent a year in London after he graduated studying linguistics too. And after that, in the late 1960s, Terry started his PhD at MIT's AI lab, led by Marvin Minsky himself. Minsky is one of the godfathers of AI. Everyone felt the promise, and it was, a, you know, as I say, the people doing it were like undergraduates. I was, an old, I was an old person, right, in that group. So there was a sort of youthful sense of, we're the new generation, we're going to make things happen. So Terry got to work on Sherdlu, the intelligent-seeming software that we introduced earlier. It was grueling work, piecing together different parts of the software, but it gradually came together. I think one of the most striking things about the program, in addition to this direct visual, you could see what it was doing, you could talk about it doing, is that I attempted to deal with some of the interesting properties of language in that you don't say everything that's explicitly. So you say, I mean, take the most obvious example there, put it next to a red one. A red what? What is a one? And to know what you mean, you of course have to go back into the context. You have to know that previously you said, find a blue block, put it next to a red one. So now you're going to go back a sentence and find that you meant block. Or you could say, pick up another one. What does another mean? So hold, and pronouns, put it. If I say, now put it in the box, 
it has to figure out which of the things from the previous world you meant by it. So it had a very natural flow to it. When Terry revealed Sherlude to the world in 1972 in the form of an entire issue of the Journal of Cognitive Psychology, the world was amazed. We're starting here at zero. We don't know what you can do. When you make a big first step, you say, hey, going to keep going up, right? I mean, and so I think that the fact it could do as much as it did uh, certainly gave people like Marvin Minsky a lot of confidence. I mean, he was, I think, a bigger booster of my program than I was. The confidence Terry's referring to here, that's confidence in the progress scientists were making to develop computers that were just as smart as humans. Terry's breakthrough inspired a lot of smart people to believe that sentient computers were just around the corner. And so shortly after, Terry left MIT for the warmer pastures of California. Back when Silicon Valley was a quiet place full of fruit orchards. Ah, so nice. No traffic. <laughs> and as a professor at Stanford and a researcher at the legendary research lab Xerox Park, he worked on trying to expand Shardlu. He was trying to get it to work in a more complicated environment than just a couple geometric shapes on top of a table. And then Shurdlu took over the world and destroyed mankind. <laughs> or not. Things weren't going the way Terry had hoped. The attempt we were making at, in that project was to come to a broader analysis of meaning which could handle the ways in which meaning is much vaguer and less systematic than it was for the blocks world. Uh, and in my talks about this, I always use blocks as an example because it's a really simple one, which is in that world, block meant exactly one thing. It meant a rectangular shaped object of a you know, certain size and so on. Uh, but if I say to you, let's walk around the block, it has a second meaning, which is different. So you say, okay, so you have to put in two meanings. But then I say something like, hey, well, you know, I'm trying to write this paper, but there's some kind of a block I can't get over. Now it's not even a physical object. It's a metaphorical physical object. So language really works that way. Very little of it has precisely defined meanings outside of technical stuff. Uh, and we're always extending meanings and using implicit metaphors, not fancy metaphors, you know, life is a rose, but bowl of roses or whatever, but just like a block in my mental thinking. Um, and trying to write the logic, the algorithms, the underlying computer stuff which could handle that is a totally different problem from just handling the simple logical stuff. And we tackled that problem. And in hindsight, I would say I was aware we weren't getting very far. And while Terry's doubts were growing, he also started hanging out with a few academics in the Bay Area. There were philosophers Hubert Dreyfus and John Searle, and there was this Chilean engineer, entrepreneur, and politician called Fernando Flores. They were all making the same broad point around this time, which was this. The way our brains work, so much of it happens without us explicitly thinking about it in a logical way, like if A, then B, and if B, then C. It's this complete black box to us, so maybe it wasn't ever going to be possible to get a machine to do all the things that our human brains can do. This philosophy resonated more and more with Terry. And in the meantime, the entire field of AI was having this moment of reckoning. As anybody does when they're doing a new technology and they need to get grants, 
they will say it's going to solve all the problems in the world, right? Best thing since sliced bread. And then it filters out. And so what happened is that AI hit this point where the claims had overreached. The results were not that great. Uh, they were good in certain small technical areas. It wasn't there was no results, but nothing on the scale of what people were promising. And that ushered in what became known as the AI winter. Research projects got defunded, startups died, all this excitement withered away. So by the 1980s, Terry was pretty much convinced that he'd reached a dead end, which, I don't know, you'd think would be this devastating realization for him. But right around this time, something else came along. Up until approximately 83, if you used a computer, you were a technical nerd in a basement somewhere. And the fact you had to learn all sorts of arcane stuff was, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, and then there was the computer for the rest of us. It can draw a picture or it can draw conclusions. It's a personal computer from Apple and it's as easy to use as this Macintosh, the computer for the rest of us. <laughs> if you're in tech, you probably have seen that ad at some point, right? And Apple came out with the Mac. And all of a sudden, you had all these people who wanted to use computers who were not tech nerds and were not willing to learn all the arcane stuff. And so the whole field of how do you make them something that ordinary people can deal with blossomed. So Terry decided not to obsess over building computers that were going to truly think. And he wasn't going to worry about understanding how the brain really works either. John Lilly, a former student of Terry's who's a partner at the venture capital firm Greylock Capital, described Terry's vision like this. Machines can't do everything, and by focusing on what the machine capability is is always a little bit of a mistake. So you really want to focus on the whole system, which includes humans in it. And if it includes humans and machines, then the interface between humans and machines is the key. And that philosophy helped shape the course of what was at the time a budding discipline called human-computer interaction. HCI is all about designing tools to help us humans use computers more easily. Yeah, taking these clunky machines out of research labs and putting them into the hands of you and me. In Silicon Valley today, you hear this acronym HCI all the time. That's a very, very strong view that printed on me for sure, and I think everybody who works through that program, you know, Marissa and Reed and others. Okay, so that's Marissa, as in Marissa Meyer, Google employee number 20 and the CEO of Yahoo. And Reed, as in Reed Hoffman, a founding director of PayPal and the creator of LinkedIn. But the most famous of Terry's students are Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They met as graduate students in 1995. They started working on a way to organize all the different web pages out there, and Terry supervised their project. That turned into the foundations of Google Search. I mean, something that helps us access the trillions of web pages of content. I can't really think of a single digital tool that's been more useful in modern life. Thanks to Terry's guidance, Google was born as a company on September 4th, 1998. And it's now the world's second most valuable company. Pretty cool stuff. Hey, Aki, calm down, calm down. We, <laughs> we should point out that Terry wasn't always this business genius passing down sage advice to his students. And I would say to Larry occasionally, well, yeah, that's great, but how are you going to make money with this? I think what you should do, this is my advice, is you know, find a company like Microsoft or somebody who needs a search engine and 
sell it for a nice chunk of change. And I always say they're fortunate they took my technical advice, but not my business advice. <laughs> so let's fast forward about two decades to today. Larry Page is still at the helm of Google, and one of the company's biggest bets is its digital assistant. It's called Google Assistant, and it's connected to its new smartphone called Pixel. And it's also connected to its home device, which is like this portable speaker that speaks back to you. And that follows in the footsteps of all the other digital assistants out there. First of all, there's Siri, which is the assistant on the iPhone. Hello there, Aki. There's the Amazon Echo, which is called Alexa. Hello, I'm here. And then there's Microsoft's assistant, which is called Cortana. Hey there, my friend. We wanted to know if these new helpers are useful and smart. So who better to quiz them than Terry? Along with our editor, Emily Busso, we started setting up these devices on Terry's desk in his office. Volcano question. Hey, Alexa, are you on? Hello, I'm here. Okay, great. So Alexa's working. Yeah, so we have, we have Amazon Echo Alexa. These are all on Professor Winograd's uh, desk in his office. Uh, Alexa's just turned herself on. You listening to me? Okay, so here's the first question. This is Terry asking Siri. Where's a nightclub that my Methodist uncle would enjoy? Okay, check it out. What does it show? Shows some random nightclubs. Now I have no idea <laughs> if they have any, you know. If, holy, if they, holy, holy, cow I wonder if holy, nightclub, holy, maybe, the maybe. Uptown nightclub, the Grand. So it gave us nightclubs, but we're not sure. We're not if sure. It's something our Methodist uncle. Holy Enjoy. cow could have. Holy cow, do you think it probably understood that it was it a religion? It may have been religion and, and holy. That is, this is what the problem with this kind of AI, which is there's no logical chain you can follow, but that may have somewhere in the, the workings have actually caused that to have a higher ranking than something else. Okay, so maybe a B minus for Siri here. The next one went to Microsoft's Cortana. Where is a nightclub my Methodist uncle would enjoy? So I've got. <laughs> okay. And what do you guys see? We got a Bing search. Basically, the Bing search with that entire phrase, and the top one is called "I fell in love with my uncle who abused me from the age of." Oh no. <laughs> the age oh, of no. six. Oh no. <laughs> that is very, very. The experience useful. project. Oh no. Yeah. Why do you think they sent that? Did, did, it, did well, it get the... It, it did a Bing search, just took that whole phrase. So it had uncle and why that comes up, why those particular keywords, again, the same problem with AI. You have no logic that can tell you why that one came up. Somewhere in the sorting through all the millions of things, that got higher rating. Wow. There must have been something in there with... with Oh, that's terrible. I'm not even and probably mentions a nightclub somewhere in it. Yeah, probably. Oh. That's probably what it is. That's, please, that's please exactly what that it is. That's probably exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, ah, okay. Let's put Cortana away. Here's another question Terry came up with, and he tested it out on Google. If Mauna Loa erupts, will I have to worry about the lava here? Here's what I found on the web. Oh, no, that one's not bad. So it found a web page from Hawaii News called, What Could Happen When Mauna Loa Erupts? Hmm. Oh, and which one is that? That's Google. So uh, it didn't answer, again, it didn't answer my question about here. Right. There's no way of doing that. Mm -hmm. But at least it got Mauna Loa and erupt. 
and sort of got a, a, an article about what could happen. You said there's no way of doing that. Oh, not given, given, given the techniques they use. But will there ever be a way of doing that? Ever is a hard question. It will take a mixture of techniques of which the old AI stuff has to be resurrected in a new form, which combines with the new AI stuff in a way that at this point I think nobody has a good grip on. So, so let me start off with you. I'm, I'm a uh, mechanist. I believe everything that goes on in my brain and yours is all because of electrons and you know, chemicals squirting around, whatever. And therefore, there's no reason that some physical device other than a brain can't do the same thing if it were properly constructed. Hey Alexa, if Mauna Loa erupts, will I have to worry about the lava here? Sorry, I can't find the answer to the question I heard. Okay, Just, you know, at least knowing you don't know the answer is better than <laughs> making up an answer. <laughs> And since we visited Terry on the Friday before the election, we had to get him to ask this too. He asked in the order of Cortana, Google, and Siri. Who do you want to win the US presidential election? I honestly can't tell if that's a trick question. I suspect want triggers. This is a trick question, is my guess. Mm -hmm. Not too bad. Uh, this is Google. Who do you want to win the U.S. presidential election? That's in the hands of informed citizens. That's really good. Okay, so that one, they, 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 somebody, and my guess is that's a human intervention where they, there are enough people asking about the election that they put in a special thing. Interesting. Let's try with Siri. Who do you want to win the U.S. presidential election? Election day is Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. <laughs> well, that's true. So it just triggered on the word election. Mm -hmm. I didn't pay attention to the rest of it. And after a couple more questions, we turned to Terry for his grand assessment. And in general, and, and, and <coughs> did, did, were, were your, was your caution um, proved? Yeah, I mean, there's no, none of these showed the kind of understanding a person would for the same question. And then even, okay, even more than that, so think back to your Sherdlu program. How far have these come? They've gone a different direction. So Sherdlu could have answered questions like that perfectly if they were about these few blocks on the tabletop. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing else, period. Uh, because it was trying to do the logic. They have given up basically trying to do that, which is why they depend on things like search so much. Um, and um, they've come a long way from a usefulness point of view. I mean, Shirley was not very useful unless you were <laughs> moving blocks on his tabletop. Uh, this can find you a restaurant or found me a nightclub, right? Now, it didn't really focus in on the ones I might have wanted, but at least it was a start. It found me the, the web page about Mauna Loa effects. So from a pure usefulness point of view, um, I think they're doing some useful things as long as you don't depend on them too much. Okay, so it's been more than 40 years since Terry created Shurdlu, and this is how far we've come. Which I don't know, it doesn't sound like a whole lot. Yeah, we've, we felt pretty deflated, actually. Our own mini AI winter right there in Terry's office. <laughs> I'm interested in your view of the future 
especially involving AI and the ability of, com to, uh, of computers to, to get more, more and more advanced and do maybe do things more themselves. Do, do, do these things make you feel confident in the future or just kind of blah or, or worried? Yeah, I would say, so my view is that the kind of the advances and developments that are going on in AI are going to have lots of very practical applications. Right? So you take a lot of medical cases and you can figure out a likely diagnosis for something. I think that's going to happen. Now, the part where you're trying to deal with people and how they're thinking and what they're asking is probably on the, on the hard and not as practical end compared to all of these things, driving cars, right? They can drive cars. I mean, I think, I believe that currently they can probably drive as well as most people. Wow. And there's no sense of perfection in driving, right? You're competing with human beings. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, positioning stay stations, whatever. I mean, there's a zillion things which can be done better if you have a learning algorithm to help come up with the, the right parameters and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm optimistic in that, you know, if I were investing, right, which I'm not, but you know, you could say there's going to be a lot there. Look for companies that are finding really useful niches, not ones that say we're going to solve the grand problem all at once. Um, and what is the grand problem? Well, the grand problem is can you have something which is indistinguishable from how people think? And it's sort of gone off that track in a way because most of the work that's being done in these kind of programs don't really try to think like people think. I mean, everybody knows you do not think by having a trillion examples in your head and doing, you know, 60 billion gigaflops of processing <laughs> right, to go through examples. It's just not how it works. There's something else going on. And Terry here, he's referring to the advances scientists have made in what's called machine learning. Instead of programming these explicit rules one by one, scientists have been able to do a lot of things by making computers in just millions of examples of the same thing. And then they use this really high-powered form of statistics to learn from those examples. And that's made it possible for us to get, say, self-driving cars. Oh, and software to recognize cats on the internet, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a real breakthrough there. But for something like a machine that can solve all of our problems? It's going to take the kind of leaps forward that Einstein made. It's not a matter of take what we have now and just keep chugging away. Now, when are those Einsteins going to come along? Maybe one of them's in my class. Who knows? So I guess the results of this very unscientific test that we conducted match Terry's vision all along. For the foreseeable future, computers are going to need us humans to help them with the nuances and the complexities of the real world. Although Terry did leave us with one last warning. The systems, the smart, the systems that run things and so on should, and I'm putting that into should as opposed to will because has to happen, be made to happen, involve the combined intelligence and wisdom of people and computers. The danger, I think, is that people will put in computer systems without that check and then trust them. I mean, the military angle is a big one. There's this whole question about robot drones. What if mm. we put drones up in the air with weapons, which we have, and then say, okay, go kill bad guys. All right? Well, that shouldn't be without a human in the loop, right? There should be some sense of responsibility. But it's the easy thing to do from a military point of view, right? So I think the, the danger, when I see the, what are the dangers of AI, I'm not worried about machines taking over and thinking 
better than we do. I'm worried about people putting dependencies on machines which do enough intelligence things that they can let them go off on their own. And among Terry's students who make up this next generation of innovators, this key ingredient of morality really stuck with them too. We stopped by the office of another of Terry's former students, an investor called Manu Kumar, who's the founder of a seed fund called K9. He definitely helped shape my worldview in terms of like, oh, how to be responsible as a, as a scientist and a, and a technologist, right? Um, and that plays a factor today. Like there'll be companies that I have passed on investing in just because I feel they're doing things that are morally or, or uh, ethically questionable, right? Um, and um, like I've, I've walked away from investing in companies which like technically a lot of what they're doing is possible and makes a lot of sense, but, but if you're doing surveillance based on uh, reading the MAC address in your phone, right? And then using that information for, for, for doing retail intelligence as an example, right? Like, yes, I know it's technically possible, it can be done, but should it be done? And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. And tell us, what have your experiences been with all the digital assistants out there? You can tweet at me at Akiito7. And I'm at Alistair M. Barr. And if you're not a Twitter user, you can also write to our producer, Pia, or even better, you can record a voice memo and send it to her at pgedkari at bloomberg.net. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. Yeah, I read each and every one of them, and they really help us get in front of more listeners. This episode was produced by Emily Busso, Pierre Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. Alec McCabe is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. That's it for the week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.